Hey friend, when was the last time you listened to a podcast that told you everything you needed to know to break into or do your work in the field of continuing medical education and continuing education for health professionals? If it's been a hot minute, or like never, you've arrived at the right podcast. In fact, you've arrived at Right Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. Are you feeling stuck in your work? Are you looking for inspiration from your peers? Are you looking for a way to break into this incredibly rewarding and intellectually satisfying field? Well, Right Medicine is here to offer you guidance and strategies as you navigate all phases of CME and CE creation. Every Wednesday, join me, Alex Housen, a medical writer specializing in CME and CE content creation as I host thoughtful, provocative, and rich conversations with guests about adult learning, content creation techniques, effective formats in CME and CE, and trends in healthcare that influence the type of content we create. Right Medicine is here to motivate you to learn and grow as a CME and CE professional, wherever you are in the content creation process. If your work involves planning, designing, creating, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Continuing education for healthcare professionals is full of complex medical terminology and data-heavy information. This can make absorbing and acting on the content difficult, especially when health professionals are doing so much of their learning online or on their phones. That's why plain language principles are so important for medical education writers and designers. In today's podcast, Ahava Liebtag shares what led her to become involved in the field of plain language. As a highly literate individual, she found herself struggling to understand complex medical language when researching her own health condition. This experience sparked her passion for communicating in plain language and led her to work in hospitals and with subject matter experts to help bridge the gap between technical language and plain language. We talk about strategies for writing clear, understandable content for online education and digital platforms, and dig into the misconception that plain language is just about dumbing things down. Indeed, Ahava emphasizes the importance of helping people let go of the idea that they need to sound complex to communicate authority. If you're ready to explore plain language building blocks, techniques for writing scannable digital content, and how to use analogies to explain complex medical topics, this is the episode for you. Welcome, Ahava. Thank you so much, Alex, for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, it's good to to see you and get a little bit of time on your calendar because I know that you are super busy. So, You know that Right Medicine listeners are largely in the continuing education for health professional space. In order for them to learn a little bit about you, could you share something about your background and how you got involved in the field of plain language? Sure. So I was your classic English major in college or university, as you would say in the European world. Right. And I wanted to be a journalist, so I became a journalist for a little bit. And then I decided that wasn't for me. So I moved into sort of advertising, corporate communications in the United States. And then 
I became very interested in how the United States government sort of communicated with its citizens about different things that they had to talk to them about. I don't even really remember where that came from, but it sort of just became interesting to me. So I decided to go get a master's in communications at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and I moved here. I had just gotten married. And then about five years after that, I started to have symptoms of what became a chronic GI condition, but started off as I had to get my gallbladder removed. And then I got pancreatitis, which I was in the hospital for, and it was very dangerous. Uh, Yeah. And I had to have a lot of procedures. So in doing my research online about what was going on, I encountered a lot of very complex medical language that I, as a highly literate individual who reads, you know, 50 books a year, had no idea what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. And so at that same time, I started to write for a hospital foundation. And then I got work in the hospital working with their nuclear medicine and their ENTs, which is also known Mm -hmm. as otolaryngology. And actually, in order to learn how to say otolaryngology, I went to the American Academy of Otolaryngology site. And at that time, they had a widget that you could press and it would say it. And I would practice saying it over and over again. So I would know what it sounded like to the doctors. And just I think that story alone illustrates like, here we expect patients to be able to devise meaning out of a multi-syllable word like that. Mm-hmm. It really made me very passionate about trying to communicate to people in the plainest language possible. And then I think, you know, working with clients at hospitals, at providers, B2B companies, it became very clear to me that people didn't really understand what plain language truly was. They thought it was just dumbing things down. Mm. And so I've tried to work hard to create sort of a curriculum when I'm talking to clients and particularly subject matter experts who are used to technical language about what plain language is and what plain language really isn't. And so that's that's kind of how I, I had my own personal sort of intro into it. And then just working with it from a writing and communication perspective in the quote unquote real world and not let's say in an academic setting made me sort of really understand how complex it is to help people let go of the idea that they have to sound complex in order mm-hmm. to communicate authority. Yeah, no, that's I there's a lot of things to dig into there. And first of all, I'm not going to say the Oto word. I'm just going to stick with ENT because, <laughs> you know, and I and I trained as a healthcare professional, you know, I was a a nurse for many years. And I and know exactly what you mean about, okay, I'm a literate person, I'm highly educated. I come across things not only as a patient, but also as, you know, a professional writer in the continuing education space where the way in which information is communicated is incredibly complex. And some of that, you know, when you get into clinical data, there is potentially some necessity there. And we can get into that because I'd love to hear what you, what you think about that. And I think. There is definitely a shift away from that, even in the communication of of scientific and, and medical data to to professionals. But I want to kind of circle back to and thank you for sharing your personal story. I don't yeah. think I had realized that, but that's that's a very visceral and uh, deep way to get involved in uh, you know a professional area when it affects you so deeply personally in the way that your experience has. But I wanted to circle back to plain language. And you did mention that notion of, you know, people see it as, as dumbing down. But what is plain language? How do you sure. 
define it because yeah. I mean, obviously, the government has you know 2011, you know, kind of initiative around plain language. Yeah. What what is it, and why is it important? Sure. So first of all, I want to thank you for being a nurse. Thank you for your service to humanity. <laughs> it's not an easy profession. And any of us who have been not. in the hospital know the nurses do, uh, you know, I would say 80% of the work. So thank you for that. So if you read the 2011 Plain Language Act, you kind of want to vomit because it actually <laughs> doesn't really make any sense. But the meaning that I really use all the time or the definition that I really use, which I pulled out of that, just tried to make it more, just tried to make it easier to understand was, can people find what they're looking for? Can they understand what they're looking for? And then can they act upon that information? So it's, it's really very three clear verbs. Can they find it? Can they understand it? Can they use it? And so even when you're talking about, let's say, like a highly literate profession or a set of subject matter experts who have what we call shared communities of practice. So I'm a quilter. When quilters talk oh, to so each other, nice. we, oh, okay, great. <laughs> So we use all sorts of words with each other that we have shorthand for that when we would have to explain them to somebody else, we'd probably have to go into a launch into a longer explanation, and then they would understand what that meant. So when you talk to a doctor and you say supraventricular tachycardia, which is a arrhythmia in the heart, two word, probably four words there I threw that you didn't understand if you've never been a heart patient. But an arrhythmia is very simply the heart falls out of its natural rhythm. So, or the heart doesn't beat the way it's supposed to. We could even go, you know, deeper down into making it as plain as possible. So what we need to do is educate stakeholders that when you're reading within your shared community of practice, you certainly can use quote unquote jargon because those are just technical terms that you understand. Hmm. However, when we look at studies, we find out that doctors make terrible mistakes when they're reading because things are so complex. So they did a study where they showed primary care physicians, they asked them to interpret a chart that talked about how the survival rates of patients with anal cancer would change based on different treatments. 50% of the doctors could not interpret it. So there you properly. So mm -hmm. there you have a very clear example of for continuing medical education on how if you're going to give somebody a chart, you better explain really clearly what the chart says. And certainly when you're interpreting data, metaphor is very powerful in that way. You know, when we talk about percentiles, we always say you can name the number, but then you better explain what that means. So if you say 50%, that means five out of 10. For a lot of people, when they are reading something for the first time or even listening or trying to understand something, and it is terrifying to them because it has to do with their health. They're undergoing what we call an amygdala hijack. So the amygdala mm. is telling cortisol to pump out through the body, increase the blood pressure. And in order to preserve energy, the brain sort of leaves your consciousness, quote unquote, or your thinking ability, retreats back into the back of your brain. And so you no longer have your executive functioning, which mm -hmm. is really how you think and process language and information. So when that's happening to somebody and they're scared, they can't even understand what you're talking about because it's just there's great gaps in their ability to process language. And so one of the things that we always talk about is that you just want to calm people down and talk to them in language that they can understand that communicates empathy to them. And this is true even with subject matter experts, you know, doctors have to read something they've never read before or understand something they've never heard before, or nurses or any kind of person. You want to really take them down a path of building blocks 
to, of basic information and help them understand it. So I know I went in a lot of different areas, but yeah. what I would say is that the next time somebody challenges you on what plain language is, one of the things that I always say is it's customer-oriented language or patient-centered language in the medical field. And then I always just say, it's, can people find it? Can they understand it? Can they use it? You know, I love those. I love those building blocks. And I, I want to kind of dig into those uh, a little bit. And also that idea of using plain language as a way to essentially reset your parasympathetic nervous system. Absolutely. You know, uh, I've never actually thought about plain language in that way. But of course, there's a physiological response. I, I know myself when I read things, and I'm in a crunch, and I have to read something, interpret it, and then communicate that back to someone, say a client in an advisory board moment, I, I get nervous because am I going to be able to understand this? Am I going to be able to communicate it? And, and of course, there's, there's physiological stuff going on there. So let's talk about the building blocks. And I know you have this really handy cheat sheet that one of your colleagues shared uh, on LinkedIn actually earlier this week, and I just loved it. It's so visual. And it obviously contains three of the building blocks that you've just talked about. Can you kind of, and we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Can you talk about the building blocks, how you came up with them and why they work? Yeah, yeah. So there was a content strategist whose name is Colleen, and I cannot remember her name now, but she worked for the CDC and she did a podcast where she talked about how they sort of were doing a huge audit of the CDC's website, and they were looking at content through the lens of how was it valuable? And they had like three or four things. I think one of them was findable, one of them was understandable. And when I heard that podcast, I started thinking to myself, you know, when I write, I was a freelance web writer before I launched AHA Media Group, which is a content marketing consultancy that is very focused in healthcare. That's all we do. It's all healthcare content all the time. We do uh, copywriting and content marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. And so as this freelance web writer, I would write, you know, reams and reams of content. And then I would want to go back and make sure that I had done everything that I had done on the last project so that I could consistently provide, a, you know, an excellent product. So I, I built myself a checklist and... um I built it based on a book that I had read called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande, who oh, was I a doctor. Yeah, and it's a fabulous book. If you haven't read it, it's first of all, he writes like, you know, you're reading non you're reading fiction, you know, he just yeah. he tells a great story always. Yeah. All of his books have been very good. But in this particular one, he talks about how the World Health Organization wanted to bring down infections in after surgery. And so they built checklists for ORs. He was part of this committee that was trying to figure out how to do this. And there were some basic things in the checklist, like everybody in the operating room identifies themselves and what role they're playing that day in the in the procedure. And it occurred to me, well, why don't I take this stuff that Colleen has talked about? She's going to kill me that I can't remember her last name. But we'll you know what? I'm, 40, I'm 47 years old. Like, I give up. And oh, I hear you. <laughs> And watch, it'll come to me like at the end of the podcast. And I thought, well, you know what? That's, I like that. Let me do this. Let me say like, okay, findability. What does that mean from an SEO perspective? And then I thought about readability. Well, what does that mean from a neuroscience perspective of the coping strategies that we know people use when they're reading on screen? Okay, understandable. What do we know about the best plain languages practices? And then I added in actionable and shareable because from a business perspective, you know, it has to be actionable. You want people to follow that call to action and do something. 
I'm not a very big believer in creating content just to create content. It has to actually do something for your audience or do something for your business. And then, of course, the shareable was just because social was really starting to take off. Hmm. And, you know, it's funny that checklist like killed it. I mean, it's been downloaded more than 10,000 times from the content marketing website, Content Marketing Institute's website. It's I people used to take pictures of it for me when they would see it in other people's cubicles. Now everybody works from home. So that's not going to happen. But people really love that checklist. And quite frankly, I, I still use it sometimes when I write something. Uh, not as much anymore because my work isn't so SEO. I, I mostly write the newsletter for AHA Media Group. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I'm very proud of that work. And I think that it it really does give people a good tool for making sure that they're constantly creating a consistent product. But the plain language part of it was really around, you know, one of the things we talk, I'll, I'll give an example of of my thinking. So a content strategist named Steph Hay, who used to work at Capital One, talked to me once about a language board. And she said, what we do is when we interview subject matter experts, we'll ask them what terms they use, and then we'll do SEO research to see what our users are actually using, the terms around it. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm totally going to do that at AHA Media Group. And so we instituted that, but our writers do SEO research before they talk to doctors because they're going to have to convince them that you can't write supraventricular tachycardia because people don't search for that. What Mm -hmm. do people search for? Surprisingly, they search for the abbreviation SVT. Mm. So when we go to the doctor and we talk to them about it, part of the interview, besides getting great information from them that they want to talk to their patients about, we're educating them about why we make decisions around the words we use, the way the page looks, bullets, chunking, white space, headings. And that's a really great opportunity to get them, their mindset reframed around, okay, this content is for a consumer. I want this person to find this content and I want them to understand it so they'll make an appointment with me. And that I think is is a perfect example of sort of utilizing tools to help educate stakeholders, but also to make sure that your audience is looking for the right terms that are going to lead them to your content. Mm-hmm. And I know that doctors and stakeholders in general love data. A lot of them were trained in research facilities and they really respond to data. So when you pull up solid numbers for them, it's kind of hard for them to argue. Right. No, that totally makes sense. And I I love the story about the checklist manifesto. And you're absolutely right about Atul Gawande. I love all his books. I saw him speak live in Seattle a few years ago and he's, he's just so urbane and, you know, charming and, and, and humble, articulate. He's incredibly humble and he's a fabulous communicator. But I remember reading that, and this is slightly off topic, but I mention it because it's kind of interesting for anybody who is early in their writing career, especially in healthcare. His first article was for the New Yorker. I know. I think David Resnick, you know, kind of invited him to to do this piece (laughs) and it took him eight drafts. Yeah. Only eight? Well, <laughs> that, that I don't is, buy that. There were probably well, 60 before he submitted it. <laughs> very possibly, very possibly. And thank you for, for saying that, because I think that's, and I know this is something that Ben Riggs talks about as well, is, you know, that whole process of drafting is writing. And of course, William Zinsner, Zinsner talks about this, you know, all writing is rewriting. So does Anne Handley. Right, Anne Handley exactly. Handley the ugly first draft, yeah. Yeah. And, but Shout out to Ben. Hi, Ben. Yes. <laughs> Anyway, I just wanted to to uh, kind of flag. Well, that. I would love to address Even, that. Yeah, yeah I would please. love to address that just from a different perspective. So, 
I train writers, you know, I go in to companies and I sort of look at their content and we go over together and I teach them all these tricks about how to make sure that your content is appropriate for your audience and for the medium that you're using. And one of the things that sometimes the people that come into these training workshops are graphic designers or videographers, and they're there because their bosses told them they had to be there for the day, right? And they're right. thinking, I don't want to be in a writing workshop. And it's not, it's a, it's a digital content creation workshop, but a lot of it's on writing. And one of the things I say, I ask everybody in the room is, does everybody in this room talk? And they look at me like I'm crazy. And um, they all raise their hands like, yeah, we all talk. I'm like, then you're a writer. Because yes. all writing is, is talking written down. Yeah. And it really frees people to allow themselves to get out of that idea of a writer being this serious person with serious glasses over a typewriter, smoking a cigarette and got a whiskey <laughs> next to them. You know, we're all writers all day long Yeah, because we're talking. So we're communicating ideas. And so I think for Atul Gwanda and anyone who's ever written anything, just sit down. That's that's the first step. The first or for me, the first step is walking. I always walk when I'm drafting because yes. it, it yes. just happens for me. And then I record it into my phone and Rev.com transcribes it. And then I, 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 you know, I start editing, which is, you know, Judy Bloom said, I'm not that good of a writer, but I'm a damn good editor. So, you know, that that I think the writing process, I think, is what scares people more than anything. But that's where the the great stuff happens, you know, when you're just sitting there plugging away at it. Oh, I completely agree. And that. The walking stuff. I think Einstein said something about how crucial movement and what you know for him it was walking Ideas, is yeah. to the creative process and the the, the cognitive process. Getting some right. kind of movement into your day. And I right. and I well, great thinkers will never tell you their aha moments happened right. when they were sitting at their desks. Right. It's interesting. You know, I don't. I'm not a great thinker, but I think the story that I told about listening to the podcast and mm -hmm. then reading the book and the two mm -hmm. ideas merging together—that is the definition of creativity, right? 100%. Taking two disparate ideas and moving them together. And so, the other thing that I would tell your audience is that read everything, watch everything, learn everything you can. The best writers are curious writers, mm -hmm. and that—that's where those great ideas come from. You know, when you pull something from one thing and you put it to something else. You know, that's where you're really doing the magic, the magic work of building. And, and so I just wanted to make sure that I sort of punctuated that point because I, I often will deal with people who don't feel confident in their ability to communicate. And everybody can learn to be a great communicator. There's a lot of technical tricks that we can mm -hmm. teach people. It's bringing fresh ideas to the forefront. That's the challenge. And the way to do that, I think, is to just listen to a lot of different things, read a lot of different things, write, write a lot of different things. No, I agree. And have the confidence in making those connections between seemingly disparate totally. parts. You know, I think that's totally. a big piece. You talked about a couple of things there. You talked about writing actionable content. I definitely want to kind of parse that out a little bit, but also uh, digital content because, you know, in the continuing education world for health professionals, online content has been, you know, in, in, that is specifically for education has been increasing over the last, you know, 10, maybe even 15 years or so. And obviously the pandemic accelerated that even, even more. So what kind of things are we talking about in the digital world that we can do to plain languageify digital content? Simplify? <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I know those are good questions. So 
The truth of the matter is, is that we've trained people to read print the way that we read digital. So if you look at a newspaper from 100 years ago and you look at a newspaper now, they're vastly different, right? The columns have more space between them. There's more pictures. There's more graphics. It's just a sort of a very different thing. And one of the things that I love to do is like, I'll go to a museum and I'll find this old, you know, newspaper and I'll take a picture of it and be like, you know, I'll show it in the workshop and I'll say, see, like, you know, a hundred years ago, they could read very tiny print on a very tiny piece of paper. We just can't do that anymore. Maybe a hundred years ago, they couldn't either. They just didn't know yet. So (laughs) the basics of great neuroscience based writing in digital is uh, you want to always chunk your text no more than two paragraphs per heading. So like if you have an H2, you want to put two paragraphs and then another H2. Mm-hmm. Obviously, these are basic you know, recommendations. You can play with them. A paragraph should never be more than two to three sentences. A sentence should never be more than 14 words. The Pointer Institute, which is the premier think tank for PR professionals, did a study that comprehension drops off for high literacy readers at 14 words. So longer sentences don't work, right? So when I talk about plain language, that's one of the things that I'll say is that if you're writing for other people with inside of your shared community of practice, short sentences is plain language. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean you're dumbing it down. It means that you are making it easy to read and understand. The ideas that you're communicating are still sophisticated ideas. I just edited a white paper, actually, and I wasn't so happy with certain portions of it. And I sort of shortened some of the sentence and made much more declarative statements. And so the response was, well, we can't be that declarative because we, can't, you know, we're, we don't know. We're, we're sort of predicting the future. And I'm like, that's the point of a white paper. You're putting your position in the marketplace. So you're saying, we're going to make this happen. Mm-hmm. So of course you have, you can't hedge your bets. You can hedge your bets around things like, you know, medical issues that haven't been proven yet or things like that. I mean, gravity is not, you know, still a theory, <laughs> but we have to remember the even people who are highly writ- literate need mm-hmm. to be able to process information in chunks. So that's like a chunking visual thing. Always use bullets, always use steps. I know you were talking about, you know, whenever you feel anxious about something, anytime anything goes wrong with my computer, I Google it and I pick the article that has steps, even if it's like right there on the knowledge graph. Right. I don't want to watch a video. You know, I don't have time for that. Like, just tell me yeah. exactly what to do with pictures. So you. steps are very important. And then leaving a lot of white space. White space tells the reader that you have given them a chance to respond. It's like mm-hmm. our form of listening. Mm-hmm. And so when there's white space, a person looks at a page and it's not a wall of words coming at them. They automatically are able to make the decision that this is going to be easier to read than something that doesn't have that white space in it. So those are some of the tips and tricks. Uh, We obviously have more in our bags, but that great writers who know how to write for digital use automatically. And it's just part of their process. They don't even think about it. Yeah, I I love that. That, That's really helpful advice. I I guess I see white spaces. You know, we were talking about writing being talking as a pause in the conversation. Yeah. That's how I kind of... Uh, Same, right. I'm I'm waiting for you to either listen, react, or, you know, right, exactly. And I think for, you know, people who are working in the continuing education space, you know, sometimes there's a tendency to, you know, want to cram a lot of information in there because, uh, you know, there's so much data coming out all the time that health professionals have to be up to date with and be able to use in their practice. And so there's a tendency to, you know, stuff a lot of 
information into you know, whether it's text-based, uh, you know, education activities or patient case-based, you know, interactive activities. There's there's still a lot of information there, and I I was very interested in in hearing you talk about using declarative language because there's often a diffidence in people's writing in the continuing education space because you know people feel very reluctant to make that declarative statement but in fact once you make it you know as long as you can substantiate it it's so much more accessible for health professionals who are incredibly busy and have to actually do a lot of their learning on the go so it's it's kind of reassuring to hear to hear that well, I think it's appropriate. Yeah. I just want to be clear. I think it's appropriate mm-hmm. when in a white paper, it's an opinion piece. It's like an op-ed. Mm-hmm. So hedging your bets is very is not appropriate for that kind of piece of content, depending on what you're writing about. In this mm-hmm. particular case that I was editing, I didn't feel that it was. Writers make choices, right? Make good ones. Mm-hmm. So I made a choice. In a medical educational s- space, you may have to hedge your bets because- Sometimes. You know, yeah, we just don't know. Like, and I think one of the things that we've made a mistake about, and I can't speak to any other country but the United States because I live there, but one of the big mistakes that we've made in the United States around medicine that really the pandemic highlighted is that science is not 100% ever. Gravity is still a theory. Like, you say that to people and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, every time my kid knocks a toy off the high chair, they're trying to prove that gravity works every single time. <laughs> and, and the bottom line is, is that we think it's true. We're pretty sure we've proven it, but we really haven't yet. And so I think that it's the same thing with medicine. You know, we, we told people don't eat fat, eat sugar. Everybody got 30 pounds heavier. We're like, oh, don't eat sugar, eat fat. Then people started getting heart disease again. I mean, you can't win. And there's just so much that they don't know. And so one of the things that I think the medical community missed is humility is the ability to say, this is what we know right now. And it could change. And the reason that they're scared to do that is because, for example, with vaccines, well, if you don't know, I'm not taking it. And the answer for that was, every study we have shows that this is not going to harm you. You're right. In 30 years, something could happen we don't know about, but we're willing to take this chance because it's a cost-benefit analysis. And you make those every single day. You get in your car, Chances are you're going to get killed in your car, but you get in and you put on a seatbelt and you do everything you can to protect yourself and you're alert, you don't drink. And and we're just not good, I think, at telling those stories to people. And part of it is a lack of ability to decide when it's appropriate to be declarative and when it's not. And so I would just say, I'm not recommending being declarative in a medical space where you can't be. But I certainly think you can be declarative when you do have a study studies show that, and you're not misrepresenting the study. A lot of times, like we've had writer, our editors will go back to a writer and say, not a lot of times, but a couple of times where like, are we sure that's really what the study is saying? Because you could read this a couple of different ways. And so you have to be really careful about using facts and figures, like back up your data also. So that's the other thing I would say to anybody writing in this field is be responsible because you never know that what you communicate could actually change a uh, standard medical practice, which we never want to deviate from. So anyway, that I just want to make sure that I'm 100% clear on that issue. Yeah, no, absolutely um, taken on, on board. And and to be fair, you know, cl- uh, continuing education is definitely an area where anyone who creates content in this space is bound by 
particular codes of conduct and uh, a commitment to creating content that is fair and balanced and independent and has integrity and is evidence-based. And so that evidence-based piece is kind of baked into everything that we do in the continuing education space. But in terms of, but the other part of that is the education exists to improve clinical practice. And so it's focused on change, you know, whether it's knowledge change or behavior change. And so, you know, creating that content in a way that provides those action steps and is very clear in uh, what actions learners have to take after participating in an education yeah. activity. And yeah, certainly, that makes sense. yeah, and certainly sometimes there can be a, a little bit of diffidence, you know, can we particularly amongst kind of newer to the field writers where they lose the declarative statement in a whole bunch of sentences around there's this, there's this, there's this and this. Well, that's not helpful in terms of what is the action or the thing that uh, the learner has to take or to think in order to, you know, improve their knowledge or, or, or change their practice. So let's see, we're, we're, kind of at the end of our our time here. And we've talked about, you know, using plain language uh, as a way to simplify, as a way to communicate, communicate clearly. One of the things that you did talk about just kind of very briefly at the very beginning of our conversation was that idea of authority and expertise, you know, particularly in continuing education, there might be a tendency among some content creators to feel that if, if I write a 14 word sentence, then does that really have weight and gravitas and authority in a way that is going to speak to health professionals who are, sure. as you kind of mentioned earlier, they're, they like numbers, they like data, they, they, sure. they want to feel that they're clever, even when they're reading sometimes. Yeah, so I think some of the most important things we've ever said in human history are very short, and <laughs> they encapsulate things really well you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? That's like one that comes to mind. Or Thomas Jefferson said, every now and then rebellion is a good thing, you know, or (laughs) even you could say commercially, right? Like, just do it, Nike. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we did a study at AHA Media Group where we looked at Anthony Fauci, who was the Mm -hmm. government's basically face during COVID. Uh, He was the head of NIH's, basically their, that, infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. So, and he's retired since then, but we took, I don't know, like 15 of his public speeches and announcements, and we ran them through Hemingway, the Hemingway app, which Mm -hmm. looks at reading levels. Now, reading levels are very complicated, and I don't want to go into it on this podcast, but basically I wouldn't use them without other data. So that's why I like the Hemingway app, because it really gives you a lot of different data around how your content is scoring, not just readability levels. But he spoke at a 10th grade level. And the average American supposedly mm. can read at an eighth grade level, which is not really true either. That's not how averages it's work. More like but fifth, anyway, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so here you have the primary face of the pandemic saying things that a lot of Americans didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And so complexity does not communicate authority. And we have to trust ourselves about that as communicators. That doesn't mean things shouldn't sound smooth. It doesn't mean that you can't use the vocabulary that people know. It doesn't mean that you can't layer your sentences so that, you know, they sound mellifluent, right? 
literacy is by definition, the combination of decoding. Can your brain make symbols out of the letters that it's reading in order? uh, Can it make meaning out of the symbols that the letters represent? And can there also be cadence? Is there musical sort of rhythm to what you're writing? And that's why you need to always read your content out loud. So, you know, this is practice and trusting yourself. I read that white paper that I edited. It's so funny that we're doing this podcast the day after. And that was one of the things I didn't like about it. I didn't think that it, I just thought that it it missed that sort of smoothness that you want to have in any writing. Forget about Mm -hmm. B2C or B2B or B2P business to physician. And so there has to be a consensus community agreement amongst us as medical professionals who communicate for a living that we don't need to make it sound smart to make it right. Mm -hmm. Now, do we want to communicate authority? 100%. Authority is not communicated through complexity. All that's communicated through complexity is you're not smart enough to understand this. And that's the exact opposite, I think, of what you're trying to do in continuing ed. So the simpler that you can make it, the better it's going to be. That doesn't mean that it shouldn't sound professional, shouldn't sound smooth, shouldn't sound like that cadence that you want it to sound like when it's quote unquote business writing. But you're not going to get better uh, comprehension through 26 word sentences. It's just not possible. It's just not the way the brain works. So, you know, I mean, maybe we'll evolve, but I doubt it. I think we have other things to evolve around besides understanding 26 word sentences. I think you're absolutely right about that. Where can listeners find you? Uh, everywhere. Everywhere you want to be. <laughs> Uh, I'm at ahamediagroup.com. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn at Ahava Leaptag, L-E-I-B-T-A-G. And uh, just Google me or you know, come visit. I always love to talk about things like this. And we'll make sure that uh, there's a link to your checklist in the show notes. Are there any other resources that you yes. like to point listeners to? Yes. We have a fantastic ebook, How to Write About um, like sensitive and difficult topics that I think that your audience would really, really enjoy. Oh, yeah. So I think that that would be great. And then we created some award-winning checklists around COVID. And there's a COVID section under the resources tab on our website. And you can see some of those. And I think uh, there's, you know, some nice information that might feel quote unquote out of date. Like we did a checklist around writing about the vaccine that I think that there's still some valuable information there. So. I'll, you know, I'll make sure that you have those appropriate links. Oh, that's great. I have a lip tag, simplifier, quilter, and plain language. And Taylor Swift fan. And Taylor Taylor Swift Swift fan. (laughs) Okay. Plain language champion. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and insights with listeners of Right Medicine. Thank you, Alex. If you'd like to connect with me or today's guest or access any of the resources we talked about, check out the show notes for this episode. They're on my website where you'll also find additional resources. Find the show notes at alexhausen.com forward slash write W-R-I-T-E dash medicine dash podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Write Medicine newsletter where you'll find bi-weekly tips, tools and resources to help you create continuing medical education content with confidence. And thank you for listening today. Word of mouth is the most meaningful way we can help listeners find us and reach a wider audience. 
So please share this episode with a friend, a colleague or a client who might find the podcast helpful. And if you enjoy listening to the podcast, please write a favourable review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Or share your testimonial on the dedicated testimonial link, which is also in the show notes.